friends, welcome to another episode of Making Disciples. My name is Chris Rogers and I'm so pleased that you're joining me today on this discipleship adventure. Uh, today I'm going to be exploring the topic of have we been lied to about what is the gospel? And I'm going to be interviewing uh, Pete Hughes. Now Pete has written a book called All Things New. Pete leads an incredible church uh, near King's Cross in East London called KXC, King's Cross Church. And he just articulates something about what is the big God story in an absolutely beautiful way. Depending on how you understand the story of God uh, it will depend on how you live out your faith, where you start the story, where you end the story. It will change everything for you. And there's a danger that some of us, we're playing out a truncated, squashed view of the story of God. Uh, so have we been lied to? Have we been told uh, the story of God uh, that actually isn't quite right, isn't quite true, and therefore we're living out our faith in a way that isn't quite making sense with what we would find in the Gospels. So today we're going to explore this idea of what is the story of God that we're living out and what's our part in it. So friends, I hope you find this episode interesting. Love you to share it. Love you to tell others about it. Making Disciples comes out every Monday, podcast episode every Monday, uh, and we would love others to join us in this discipleship journey. So friends, here we go. Making Disciples, my name is Chris Rogers, interview with Pete Hughes on have we essentially been lied to about what is the gospel and the God story. Pete Hughes, welcome to the Making Disciples podcast. Thank you so much for spending uh, some time with me uh, this afternoon. It's really good uh, to connect with you. Uh, for those that have never heard of you, Pete, just yeah. tell us a little bit, just, you know, for a moment. KXC, uh, you pastor that church, does amazing work in King's Cross. Just give us a snapshot of how that occurred and, and what the church is now doing. Yeah, so my wife and I, we were part of another church in London called St Mary's Brighton Square. And around 2008, 2009, we started dreaming of church planting. We were actually living in King's Cross but asking those big questions, Lord, you know, where do you want us to be? We'll plant anywhere. You know, we're just waiting for that sense of calling. And as we began to ask that question, started to sort of dream about King's Cross, of recognising this huge regeneration was taking place in the area. This incredible unfolding story was emerging in King's Cross. So we began to talk to the bishop and others and say, look, what if we actually planted here and actually worked with other churches in the area to see God's kingdom break out. So we began those conversations and that developed some momentum. So then back in 2010, we actually launched Planted KXC and have been plugging away for the last 10 years, trying to serve alongside other churches in this incredible part of London. And it is doing great stuff. It is really, you guys are doing exciting things around That's King's Cross, it's great. Uh, a number of years ago, I heard you preach at a yeah. conference that I won't name because there's many conferences, but you were speaking on a topic which you have now written about in your book, All Things New. Yeah. And when you preached on it, it was so exciting to hear you teach on a topic that you were obviously living with for some time. Yeah. Uh, and now you've, you've written this book, All Things New. And what you've done is you, you've kind of expanded what you were talking about at that conference. So uh, I'd love to spend some time talking about some of the content in the book. I'm not yeah. going to quote you from it. I'm just going to ask you some of the questions around it, because what you're speaking into 
uh, really does change the way we live as disciples of Jesus. So in the book, you you talk, you have this framework talking about the big God story. Just give us a picture of what is the big God story? Yeah, so in the book, and I come back to this again and again, it's a really simple journey, I would say, to help us sort of like frame the story, which is creation, which is the beginning of the story, humanity made in the image and likeness of God. And you've got this vision of human flourishing that humanity fully alive, enjoying God's presence in perfect relationship with each other, in perfect relationship with created order. So you've got this this beautiful vision of what it means to be fully alive. So that's creation. And then Genesis 3 onwards, you've got this journey towards what I call decreation. It's created order unravelling. So sin begins to kick in. And there's this one theologian who describes sin as a life turned in on itself. So it's basically when your needs, your longings, your goals, your ambitions, that's all that really matters. And life begins to spiral around your own desires and ambitions. So sin kicks in, um, which means all of created order unravels. Because instead of orbiting around God, we orbit around ourselves. And you have this spiral of brother turns against brother in the Cain and Abel story and then people groups turn against people groups and then in Genesis 6 you have this real low point where it says the earth was filled with violence and God's heart was filled with pain. If you've read the opening chapters you know that the goal is that all of created order would be filled with the blessing of God and God's peace and you know human flourishing would become a vision for all but right near the beginning in Genesis 6 it's all gone horribly wrong suddenly the earth is filled with violence but more than that God's heart is filled with pain Um, and that story continues through to Genesis 11 where you've got humanity trying to sort of like build their way to the heavens in this Tower of Babel story And then in Genesis 12, you get the turning point. This is what I call the movement towards recreation, where God calls a guy called Abraham and says, you're going to be a father to a nation. And through this nation, I'm going to bring blessing to all. Healing, restoration, redemption. And that story begins and that story finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus who lives for us, who dies for our sins, who rises to new life to restore and redeem all things. So it's it's creation to decreation, to recreation, and that's how the story ends. And in the book, I spend quite a lot of time just trying to name the glorious end to the story. Because some people who've grown up in church and some people who've just heard the stereotype on the street, they think that Christians believe when you die, you leave your body behind, your soul goes to some sort of disembodied bliss where you ride on clouds, you sing songs, you drink Red Bull and have a great time. And it sounds quite fun. Um, And yet it's actually nothing to do with the biblical story and how the story ends. So the ending to the biblical story isn't humanity ascending to some sort of disembodied bliss. Quite the opposite. God comes down and makes his dwelling place with humanity and all things are restored to how they were in the beginning. So in Eden, there was no sin, no sickness, no suffering humanity, fully alive. And at the end of the story, the Apostle John has this vision and says, as God comes down and makes his dwelling place with us, suddenly there's no more death. There's no more grief. There's no more crying. There's no more pain. And then God sits on his throne, which is indicative of like his work being done. And he declares these words, behold, I'm making all things new. Hence the title of the book. And in the Greek language that the second half of the Bible, the New Testament's written in, you've got these two words for new. You've got neos, which means brand new. You know, you buy a brand new car. And then you've got this other word, kainos, which is something old that's 
made new. It's restored to its former glory. You fix up the car and it drives like new. And in Revelation 21, this is the final book of the Bible, when it says God will make all things new, the word kainos is used. In other words, everything is restored to how it was meant to be in the beginning. So every part of created order we see, every community, every individual, the fashion industry, the music industry, business, politics, all of it's restored so that we can flourish in this world that God loves and is redeeming. So that's kind of the snapshot of the story. If we take that as the story, yeah. uh, and I, I love it, on the same page, uh, it seems to me, forget about other religions, but if, if yeah. we say this three stories out there you could believe one is that there is no god so you live your yeah. life under that one is what you've just shared which would be uh this idea of uh humanity coming back into relationship with god and the restoration of all things sorry yeah. but then there's this other story in between isn't there where we shave off genesis 1 and 2 and we shave off revelation 20 21 and 22 um so we end up in this new story where Christians believe Jesus died to save them from sin yeah. and that one day we would get to Willy Wonka chocolate heaven because <laughs> because without the first two chapters we don't get the yeah. God wants to partner with you he loves you he yeah. wants to walk with you partnership so yeah. you cut that bit off and suddenly the story becomes you're a sinner yeah you need Jesus to save you from your sin so you end up with what I describe as a religious story yeah and so just give us a picture of how does the story that you've explained right from the beginning being created yeah. in the image of God through to the restora restoration back in the image of God, how does that picture, that story change, therefore, how you might live out your faith compared to the yeah. story of sin, salvation back to your holiness and then yeah. just waiting for God to return? How do we live differently depending on those two stories? Yeah, well, a phrase that I, I use in the book quite a lot, I actually nicked it from Alan Scott, is the story you live in is the story you live out. So we're all, you know, bombarded with stories and the stories that we actually begin to inhabit, that dictates how we think, how we behave. So if the story you live in is basically, you know, you're bad, but because of Jesus, you can become good. That's going to drive your thinking, your behaviour. If you in inhabit the full story of how God created things to be, which is a vision for human flourishing, and that the end of the story is the redemption of all things so that we might flourish once more. Again, that begins to shape every part of your life. So some simple examples in the truncated story that you've just named, where it's basically, you know, sin and then salvation. I guess if you're a banker, your job as a banker is to tell people about Jesus. Forget banking. It's actually God will position you somewhere just to proclaim your faith. If you're working in the music industry, forget making great music for the glory of God. Your job is to tell people in the music industry that they're sinners, they need salvation and that Jesus has made a way. Now, in that truncated story, we need to affirm that absolutely that's right. Sin has wrecked everything. Jesus has done everything necessary through dying for us, rising to new life, that we might experience salvation. But the point of the whole story isn't that we're just saved from something, it's that we're saved for something. So if you're in the music industry, then yes, proclaim this incredible message of what Christ has done, that we might experience fullness of life. But more than that, create music that points to the glory of God, that brings beauty into moments of despair. 
If you're in the banking industry, then communicate your faith in every way that you can. But redeem the banking industry. Find ways of banking that actually establish God's kingdom. If you're a teacher, then how can you use your industry to actually create pathways to human flourishing that can actually raise young people with a bigger picture of how we can contribute towards society and love one another? So I think it, it, you know, in the truncated story, basically your job, what you do most of your time is fairly inconsequential. It's a place you go to to get some money and it's an opportunity for you to share your faith. If you kind of live in the whole story, you realise hang on a minute, maybe God's positioned me here, not just to proclaim my faith and to live out my faith, but to point people towards this greater story, which is about human flourishing and not human flourishing as maybe the society talks about human flourishing or the common good, because everyone you know, can articulate what they think the common good is. For us, good is defined by God and his vision for human flourishing, which we see right the way through the scripture. And as we live in that story, Every part of life matters. How we treat our kids, especially when we're trying to homeschool in lockdown, which is incredibly challenging. How we date people, how we, you know, go about our careers through to, you know, your time with God on Sunday. Every every part of life matters. So difficult question then. How did we get there? How did we swap an incredible story of partnership? God's restoration over all things, creativity, imagination. How did we swap that, this truncated version of you're a sinner, you need Jesus to save you? Where did that go wrong? Yeah, brilliant question. I mean, I think it goes back a long way. So in those early centuries, Greek philosophy, you know, was very prevalent. And there's one Greek thinker called Plato And he had this idea, this kind of dualistic thinking that separates the spiritual and the non-spiritual. So this idea of like, we need to escape our bodies because the earthly, the material world is bad. But the spiritual, the immaterial world, that's good. So the goal of redemption is to escape the body and to ascend to this disembodied bliss. So that's Greek philosophy. But then I would say Greek philosophy and that dualistic thinking then began to infiltrate like the church and we began to sort of like flex our story to fuse it with this kind of Greek philosophy and suddenly we're like yeah maybe that is the end goal to escape the bad the worldly and to live in the kind of the spiritual immaterial world with God and suddenly we traded in our story that is so beautiful so holistic and we embrace this kind of smaller story And we began to talk about sin, being naughty boys and girls and how we can be made right. And it's all about ourselves, which in itself is sinful. That's the life turned in on itself. So the truncated story is sinful because it's centred around us so much of the time. Um, So I think it probably starts there. And then I think, you know, all of our tendencies, you know, are to sometimes reduce things and make them about us. And I think I think we've done that with with the biblical story. I mean, you mentioned religion earlier that we we develop these religious patterns, which religion is basically about what we can do to sort of like experience redemption. If we believe X, Y, Z or if we do X, Y, Z, then we'll be really good boys and girls and maybe we will experience God's salvation. Um, And the story throughout scripture isn't actually about what we do. It's what God does 
and how we participate with what God does. So there's this one theologian called Karl Barth, and he said this, it's fairly punchy. He said, religion is the height of our rebellion against God. So basically, it's this idea of God says, look, I'm going to do everything necessary for your salvation. And it's almost as if we say, by trying to do all these good deeds, oh, don't worry about it, God, we'll redeem ourselves. You know, so the Tower of Babel story I mentioned, it's like, oh, don't worry, we'll be we'll build our own tower through good deeds and we'll try and get high enough that we can experience this vision of human flourishing here on Earth through our own human endeavour. And it's just not possible. We keep making a complete mess of it. Um, But I think all human thinking tends to revert towards what can we do to save ourselves? And that's why we trade in this beautiful story about all of created order flourishing for this truncated story about what we can do to save ourselves. It's also, in in some ways, about what we can control. Yes. Um, And and a relationship is something you can't control. Yes. Uh, You can try to, but but you you really can't. And and with God, God is looking for a partnership and relationship. And sometimes partnership and relationship is is hard work. So we end up thinking, well, if I do some good stuff in my time, with my agenda, uh, that might be enough. Uh, so actually we're swapping out relationship uh, and ultimately that that is the very thing that we need to bring us the you know the wholeness uh, i love that you know the title all things new i, I want to ask you this question really yeah really, no, really. because because I, to say all things are restored and redeemed in the resurrection work of jesus that's yeah. a big you know, really all things does god deal with everything yeah. And I, I think that I mean, that's why the story is so stunning. And actually, as you read it, you know, it, when you get to the end of the story and you get to Revelation 21 and then Revelation 22, which is like all of it's now sort of like coming towards its conclusion. You're like, oh, my goodness, this story was about everything. You know, it started with nothing and then God creating stuff. And then then we experience you know, sin and everything going wrong. And you and I know what that looks like, right? So I mentioned sin as a life turned in itself. When you multiply that by 8 billion people on the planet, right? That explains the selfishness, the pain, the gang violence, the greed that we see all around us. No one needs to sort of like persuade someone that things are broken. We all know things are broken. I mean, right now in lockdown, we know that society isn't working. There's greed, there's inequality, all of this stuff. So you know, we don't need someone just to persuade us of that. But when you keep reading and you keep reading and then you get to the end, you're like, oh, my goodness, this story was about everything, about every human life being invited into redemption, every community. It's about the animal kingdom. It's about creation. It, every part of life um, is being invited into redemption. And that's why it's, it's mind blowing that God cares about everything, that dualistic thinking. There's none of it. In scripture, God actually cares about everything and wants to redeem everything. And that that is stunning. Yeah. Uh, Eugene Peterson translates it in Ephesians as um, animals, even the atom gets restored. And I, I love this idea of, you know, the bunny rabbit getting restored in all things through the cross. <laughs> you know, kettles, broken kettles getting restored in the, you know, the wholeness yeah. because of the resurrection. Like we really do mean all things. So it does affect creation care. And it affects Absolutely. our workplace. So do you want to just give us a picture of what does this look like in, in the day-to-day life of a disciple of Jesus? Yeah. 
So I, I think it's, it's why immersing yourself in scripture is critical. Like we spend so much time, you know, for you and I, we're based in London, but wherever you're based, we spend so much time marinating in the stories and the mindsets of culture. Like if you go into your workplace, there's certain stories that dominate about what is the end goal of your business. It's to make money, it's to build reputation and all, you know, the list could go on. Now, if we're immersed in those stories, for us to actually live in the story of God, the story of scripture, we need to be spending time reading scripture so that actually the dominant story is the story of God. That's why I would encourage people, you know, read the Bible whenever you can. But I do think it's a good discipline to read it first. So you wake up and before you're on social media and before you're reading BBC News or Guardian News or whatever you read, like before you're actually receiving the story of the world and the story of culture, what if we actually spent 10 minutes in scripture and actually allowed that to shape our mindset? And if, if our worldview, and a worldview is very simply how you see the world, so if our worldview was shaped by scripture, in other words, we learnt to see the world as God sees the world, then we'd go into our workplaces and we'd have a totally different perspective. So I think part of it is actually reading scripture. Um, I think part of it is actually then applying scripture of like, OK, so if this is about the redemption of all things, how I spend my money matters. So how can I get that perspective on my money? Who I bank with matters. Like, are there banks that are particularly ethical? And suddenly all these different things that we do, often without even thinking about it, suddenly as, as we're shaped by the story of scripture, we're like, okay, hang on a minute. I, I want to see all these things because they not only matter to God, but if they matter to God, they should matter to us because it affects our neighbours and affects our own well-being. I want to make those decisions in the light of this grand story, knowing that these tiny decisions how we eat, how we look after our neighbours, all these things, actually they push that story towards its fulfilment. So N.T. Wright, he's this British theologian, he has this helpful language. Um, he does a different sort of framework for understanding the Bible. I do creation, decreation, recreation. He has, you know, he calls it a five-act play, which is like creation, fall, the story of Israel, you know, the calling of the nation of Israel, then that being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And then you have the story of the church. And he basically says the Bible is like the first four acts. It's creation, it's fall, it's Israel, it's the story of Jesus. And imagine we pick up this story. He says, as we immerse ourselves in these first four acts, we almost understand what the story is all about. We know the trajectory of the story. So we're invited into the play to take that fifth act and actually to sort of be innovative and push the story towards the fulfillment. Because we know the first four acts inside out. So we're like, I understand it. I understand the heart of God that's been revealed in Jesus. I'm going to crack on now in my career and in my family and in my community and on my street. And we're pushing the story towards its fulfillment. And, and I love that. So, so when you actually immerse yourself in scripture, you realise you're an actor. And these tiny decisions... They actually push this story towards its fulfillment. And we know the end of the story. All things are going to be made new. Love it. And um, there's one particular book, bit in the book where you start to really unpack this. And, and I, I loved it. It's the bit around um, being an orphan yeah. and being fathered. Uh, when we're decreated, we, 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 all, you know, we live out this orphan syndrome. And out of the orphan syndrome, we have these behaviours and thought patterns that are totally destructive. But then when we get Jesus and understand what he's doing and the re recreation and resurrection in our lives, 
and we're adopted now into something new. We get this new adopted, uh, you call it the recreated adopted. Uh, just give yeah. us a picture of what does it mean for somebody to really understand that they're an adopted son yeah. or daughter. They're not orphans. Yeah. So I think in that chapter, I basically try and look at some of the kind of prophets in the Old Testament and how they use different metaphors to essentially point towards this creation, decreation, recreation. In other words, how things are meant to be, how things they are, how things are and how things will be. So you've got these four ones, one around kingship, that God is king. And essentially what we said is, no, 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 we'd rather be in control. We'll be our own kings. Things go horribly wrong. And then Jesus arrives and says, no, actually, I'm going to be your king and establish the kingdom. Then you have this wedding metaphor that we were, you know, in this perfect marriage relationship with, with God, if you like. And then we said, no, 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 we'd rather go our own way. And then in the Gospels, you have this language about Jesus being the bridegroom. He's restoring all those promises and we're going to be wedded together with God where we can thrive. So there's the kingship, there's the wedding, there's the shepherd. God is our shepherd. And then we said, nah, we'll be we'll be in charge. And then God comes as the good shepherd. And the final one is this father. So throughout the Old Testament, the, the title for Israel is actually God's son. So you've got this image of that's how things were meant to be, father, son. And then what happens is Israel turn their back on God and they end up far away from God. And then in Jesus, you essentially get this image of the father running to embrace the son back into relationship. And probably the most famous of all the parables is the story of the prodigal son, which we often don't realise, but it's actually a story of the Old Testament. It's a story of Israel. You know, so anyone in the crowd listening to Jesus tell the story of a son in, in great relationship with the dad and then essentially saying to the dad, I don't want this. I want my inheritance now and ending up in a far off land and then trying to get home. Anyone in the crowd in the first century listening to the story knows Jesus is talking about Israel. Israel are the lost son. They rejected God. They ended up in a far off land in exile in Babylon. And now they're trying to get home. And Jesus, through the story, is basically saying, don't you get it? This is my ministry. I am God, your father, in human flesh, running to meet you, to embrace you. Um, and for the son, he'd got this speech prepared in the story of like, oh, I've screwed up. You know, I can never come back as your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Notice the language of hired servants, because this is religion again. A hired servant is going to earn money and essentially pay back the inheritance until hopefully they hit the point where they've paid back the debts and they can be the son again. That's religion. I'm going to earn my way back to the table. I screwed up, but I'm going to make it up to you. And what does the father do in the story? He throws his cloak around his boy. He puts the signet ring back on his finger and he says, hired servant, what are you talking about? You're my son. I thought you were dead and now you're alive and you've got this incredible embrace. And, and this is the power of it, that every time we screw up and this instinct of I need to make it up to those around me, ultimately I need to make it up to God. What if we realise that's the story of religion and that isn't the Christian story? What if we realise at that moment of our biggest screw up, God was sprinting to embrace us, to throw his cloak around us. If we lived in the light of that mindset, it changes everything. <clears throat> so in the book, I share a bit of this. When I was in my mid-20s, I went into counselling and I'd hit this really, you know, a kind of a rock bottom moment in my life. And I realised I was just striving. I was trying to win love from different figures in my life because deep down, I didn't actually believe I was worthy of love. 
And through the counselling and ultimately through encountering God, but, you know, counselling was part of that, I began a journey of realising, do you know what? It doesn't matter what I achieve. It doesn't matter how productive I am, how much money I earn, all of that stuff. If I can understand in the very depth of my being that I'm not an orphan, that I'm loved and I'm adopted into God's family. If I live out of that story, I can take more risks because I'm not trying to prove anything. I'm going to experience more freedom. I'm going to live life more fully. And it's like, OK, I'm, I'm going to pursue this mindset of adoption because I think the mindset of adoption brings phenomenal freedom. Pete, thank you so much for being honest there as well, because I think for so many, um, the thought that uh, we can find the wholeness of God uh, purely by turning up to church is there, but actually we need help from friends uh, yeah. in that, don't we? Pete, we've run out of time, uh, yeah. but I, I just thank you so much for uh, unpacking that with us, because if we can get our head round what is the story God is inviting us into, then we really will live our lives very differently. Uh, so I can't more highly recommend this. Pete, if people want to connect with you, uh, what's the best way of doing that? Yeah, just KXC is, is the church. Um, KXC.org.uk is the website of the church that my wife and I lead. And again, my details are there. So feel free to get in touch. And, and mate, thank you for what you do in the area of discipleship and the stuff that you're doing in East London. You, you're a constant inspiration and seeing some of your resources on discipleship. It is a phenomenal gift to the church right now. So thank you. Hey, thanks for your time. Bless you. Brilliant. Grace and peace. God bless.